Good morning, Summit Church. That's horrible. It's cold, though. I get it. Uh, hey, I want to welcome you here this morning. This is uh, the first day in a new building, and I need to apologize about one thing. Uh, as beautiful as this building is, uh, it is not ours. And if you look around, there is not a thermostat to be found, okay? The thermostat is in North Dakota, I think, um, and uh, it's on a computer. So when we walked in this morning, it was about 59 degrees in here. We called the dude and said, hey, it's 59 degrees in here. Uh, can you get on your computer and make it warmer? And he said, oh, the heat's on. It's 62. And it's not going to get any warmer. So um, we can't control that. I apologize. I know you who have kids, you dropped them off. You walked across the barren strait to come here. And you walked in. You're like, oh, it's going to be warm. Good. And you walked in and you went, it's not any warmer. I apologize. We're going to try and fix that. But that's, there's nothing we can do. So I apologize. Just get, get close, you know. Get close. Keep your coats on. Whatever you need to do. Um, if you need to take a lap, take a lap. We've got space. So do that. Um, but... That is my apologies, but I do want to say this to you. Welcome home, Summit Church. This is your home. This is where we will be uh, for the foreseeable future. And I want you to notice there's still space. There's still some room. There's still some seats. Uh, and normally we would be like, all right, you sit in the row, you in the aisle. Like, no, there's space. So bring people, invite people. There were only about 300 people in the first service. I mean, there was tons of room in the first. We have space to grow, praise God, and that's, I think, what he intends to do with us. So um, I'm just thrilled. I'm very happy. I want to make sure that you understand this, though. We are not about buildings. We are not celebrating a building as beautiful as this is. It's not what we're doing. But I do think it's important to celebrate the faithfulness of God. And uh, it's more than a, more than a coincidence that this building's here and that, that we're in it. We've been praying for it for a year as it was being constructed. We're like, that would be good if we could do this. And here we are. So, I mean, God is incredibly faithful. Uh, we're three and a half years old as a church. We've been in five different locations. Uh, and once again, not to celebrate buildings, but I think it'd be fun to do a little trip down memory lane um, to celebrate uh, God and his faithfulness. And if you were with us on Mother's Day of 2009, that was our very, very, very first core meeting. It wasn't a worship service. It was just a, hey, if you want to be a part of a church that's going to be out in this area, will you come talk to us and listen to us? And we met in Bruce and Christy Moraine's barn. This was our very first uh, meeting place. They call it a barn. It's not a barn. It's a little gym. They just happen to have it on their own property. Um, about 25 of us gathered there. If you were there, though, will you scream real loud right now? If you were in that barn, anyone in that barn? Back row Baptist. There we go. We got them. <laughs> They're here. Um, so uh, we met through the summer of 09 in that barn, uh, bi-weekly. Uh, we came together to pray and to think about what God was going to do with this. And then on August 23rd of 2009, we had our first ever worship service. It was called a preview service. People could come check it out. We did that at Mid-America Christian University. This is what it on that service day, and uh, if you were at MACU for any of our four preview, preview services, just scream right now. If you were there, any of our four preview services. Still in the back row, interesting. Okay, um, we met four times in mid-America. Uh, we, we had four preview services, one in August, one in September, one in October, one in November. November 15th was our last preview service of 2009, and November 22nd, of 2009, we moved into our first Newcastle Public Schools facility, and it's known as the Old Gym, and that's what it looked like on November 22nd of 2009. That was actually our Easter service, so that would have been in 2010, but if you ever went to church in the Old Gym, uh, go ahead and scream right now. Anyone in the Old Gym? 
we're filling up. We're filling up. And, and if you remember the old gym, it smelled like urine. And that's just the truth. Um, but that was our home uh, until, once again, Mother's Day of 2010. And if you remember the fabled Mother's Day of 2010, it was about 98 degrees in that room. People were passing out. People were sweating. Um, I had one guy come up to me and goes, it's like going to church in Africa. And I'm like, no, that's not what we're going for. So um, it, we moved out of there. And our next location, our next stop was in May of 2010. And we were uh, escorted into the middle school the Newcastle Public School Middle School into that cafeteria. That's what it looked like when we met there. Um, who went in the middle school? Anyone in the middle school? Yeah, all right, everybody now. Okay, um, we were in the middle school then for almost a year as we bought and remodeled our permanent facility. Uh, we moved into that per permanent facility in February of 2011. So who's been in that facility before? Anyone ever been over there? Yeah. And then the rest would just be, this is your first day, so welcome. Well, welcome uh, to our fifth location. It just is, I think, a testimony to the faithfulness of God. That's what this is all about. And on January the 13th, 2013, this became our home. And you know what? I have no idea what the future holds. But God does, and I'm really okay with that. So uh, we want to celebrate. We want to know that what we're doing here is important. But what we're doing here is very simple. What I want to accomplish every week when we come together, meet in this space or any other space, I, I want to worship God. In, in doing so, I want to prepare our hearts to hear the spoken word. And then I want to open the word. I want to dive in. I want to tear it apart. I want to see what God has to say, his truth spoken to us. I, I want us to receive that word and then to do something about it. And, and we call that response. Every week, we want to respond to the word. So we will typically do that in the form of having someone come up here and play some music so that we can respond. But in that response time, what I want to see happen are, are three things. I want us to reflect on what had just been spoken to us through the word. I, I want you to have the opportunity to do that, to chew on it, to allow God to change you. It does nothing to just hear it and forget it. I believe James tells us that. It does no good. So I want you to have an opportunity to reflect on the word as we respond. And then I want you to have an opportunity to remember. And I'm not trying to alliterate this, but I think it's simple. I want you to remember. And the way that we do that in our Christian faith is by taking communion. The bread and the cup represent the body and the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. It is the gospel all in one. And we, every week, have the opportunity to take communion. You can do that at any point in the service, but that response time at the end is when I would really recommend you doing that. We have communion stations right there and right there, so no matter if you're in the top or in the bottom, you can get there, you can take that, you can remember. And, and then the final thing, and this is the one I'm going to harp on a lot, that response time is a period of time set apart every week for you to receive prayer. Because I believe in the power of prayer. I believe it changes lives. I believe it transforms lives. I believe it heals. I believe it overcomes. I do not believe there's anything that prayer cannot do. And we have a prayer team that every week during that response time is going to be there to meet with you, and we're all broken, and we all need God to move. And I think that's an okay thing to say from the mountaintops. Like, I need God to move. So you're going to get a chance every week to respond and receive prayer. That's what we do here. It's very simple. But it's very powerful. It's very good. Because I think the result of that is that we look more like him, more like his disciples. And if we're more like him and we're, we are his disciples, then I think he'll receive glory, and that's our goal. That's at least why I want to do this, so that God gets the glory. 
Um, we're back in Mark today. It's been a while. Uh, but for those of you who are on break, you're coming back, you're like, oh, wh- what else did you do? Well, check it out on the podcast. But um, we're back in Mark. We're finishing up chapter 12. I'm going to pray, but we're in chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. That's where we will be. Let's bow our heads and ask God to come and meet with us. Father, thank you um, for your faithfulness. It has been proven time and time, not only here as a church body, but God, individually and just in my life, I I know that you are faithful, and we thank you for that. We honor you, and we glorify you for that. We ask right now that you'd send your Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts, to God, meet us right where we're at, to prepare us to to be fertile, to, to receive your word as a seed that will grow and bear fruit. God, we want to be transformed by it. I pray specifically today that we would look at anything in our lives, specifically in, within our beliefs and within our religion, God, that we would look at them and see anything that hinders us from you or dilutes you. God, may we see that and may it be revealed and may it be removed by your Holy Spirit through your word. God, we want to honor and glorify you. We want your kingdom to come and your will to be done, and we need you and your grace for that to happen. So God, come and fill this place. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 12, the verses 35 to 37, just understanding the context. First, chronologically, the context is uh, we're still in the last week of Jesus' life. Specifically, it's Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. We've been on Tuesday for a long time. A lot happened on Tuesday. Specifically, a bunch of questions were thrown at Jesus. Those questions came at Jesus with one purpose, to trap him, to make him stumble over his words and say something that would give everyone in Jerusalem the ability and the authority to arrest him and hopefully kill him. So these questions came from three different groups. If you remember, the first question came from the Herodians. They wanted to know, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Is that something that we should do? And, and Jesus goes, I'll tell you what. Uh, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You give to God what is God's. You do that, you're going to be good. And they kind of went, wow, that's an incredible answer. And then the second question came from a left-wing crazy group named the Sadducees. They, they came in and they said, all right, um, here's the deal. In the afterlife, when we go to heaven, if someone on this earth had been married eight times, married and, and every time their husband died and that woman goes to heaven, which one would be her husband in the afterlife, in heaven? And Jesus goes, you don't even know the scriptures. You won't be married. You won't be given in marriage in heaven. It, don't worry about it. It's a, it's a moot point because there isn't marriage in heaven. And he quiets them. And then one lawyer, a stud, up-and-comer, he comes up for the third question. He asks a respectful and very, very candid question. He says this, of the 600 and some Old Testament laws and commands, which one is the most important command? And Jesus, looking at all of them, goes, you know what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he goes, if you want a second one, that's the number one. If you want a second one, love your neighbor as yourself. And this teacher of the law goes, well done, sir. At that point, the crowd around Jesus was swelling. They loved him. Everyone who came up was dismissed after a very, very good answer. Everyone who came up was taken, was considered, and when then was dismissed. Jesus could not be trapped on that day, and the crowd was loving it. And then Jesus says, here's an opportunity to do some teaching. He knew his time on this earth was limited, so he said, I'm going to do some teaching. Everyone's already here listening. Here we go, and that's where we pick up our passage today. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked a question of his own. Day of questioning ends with Jesus asking one question. 
Here is the question that Jesus asks. How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? All right, make sure you follow this. His one question. These teachers, these men who've been trying to trap me, they say that the Christ, now who is the Christ? Okay, that's, that's our first thing we have to unpack. Christ is, in Hebrew, the anointed one. That doesn't help us much, but in the Old Testament, the anointed one was the one who would be sent by God to redeem God's people. They started looking for him and calling him the Messiah or the Christ. That's all the same person. So, so don't get confused here. Jesus is asking, how come you say the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's going to come from God, how come you say he's a son of David? That's his question. Well, the reason that they say that is actually very easy to understand. Nine times in the Old Testament, it says that. It says that the Christ, the Messiah, will come from the line of David. Here's just two examples. Isaiah 1 verse 1 says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. So that's still David's line. So a stump will come up, or a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his root, a branch will bear fruit. Notice that the branch is a capital B. That's not a word in second grade that you're told to capitalize unless it's the beginning of a sentence, and it's not. So that means there's something else implied here. We'll see it again in just a moment. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, another one of the, the many passages in the Old Testament that mention this, says this, the days are coming. So it will be in the future, Jeremiah writes, but he's saying the Lord will do this. He will rise up to David, or through David, a righteous branch. There again, capitalized. So it is referring, the branch is a person. It is a proper noun. The branch is the Messiah. So David will rise up a righteous Messiah, a king, a king of kings, who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Now, this is pertinent to us this morning, just so you understand. When Jesus says, why is it that you say that the Christ will come from the line of David, they say it because it's what the Bible says. They're not wrong. And if you were to ask anyone in first century Palestine that had read the Old Testament, uh, so this Messiah, uh, who's he going to be the son of? No one would say the son of God. 2,000 years later, we know that. The Messiah will be the son of God. He's coming. It's going to be cool. You just wait. No one would have said that. They would have said, the Messiah will be the son of David. Everyone would say that. And if you notice in the Gospel of Mark earlier, blind man sees Jesus coming up. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, yeah. Because that blind man assumed that this healer, Jesus, was the Messiah. And by saying son of David, he was declaring just that. So Jesus asked this question. Why do you say that the Christ is the son of David? Jesus asked the question, and then before they have a chance to answer it, he answers it by interpreting a passage that is very familiar to them. Jesus is going to exegete, meaning take apart correctly, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage 
in the New Testament. Follow me. In the New Testament, many times writers quote the Old Testament. It happens all the time. But the passage that is quoted the most in the New Testament is Psalms 110. Why is that? Because Psalm 110 was an incredibly, incredibly popular passage. It was a messianic passage, meaning that everyone who knew it, and they would have known it by heart, saw that it was a passage that was referring to the coming of the Messiah. So Jesus takes a passage that everyone listening would have known, everyone listening would have loved, and everyone listening knows, talks about the Christ, the Messiah, and he says, you know what, for your entire life, You've interpreted this incorrectly. And I will show you how to properly interpret it. And he begins in verse 36. David said himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, meaning that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is written by man as directed by God. So when David, writing Psalm 110, says this, we can take it to the bank, just like we can any other Scripture. And here's what David said. The Lord, now that word is Jehovah, so that's God, okay? The Lord, or God, said to my Lord. Now, this is David speaking. So when he says, God said to my Lord, that's my Adonai, that's my master, is how you could also translate that. So when God said to my master, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. David says that the Messiah is his master. That's what this passage is saying. The Lord said to my Lord, God said to my master, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then Jesus explains, he exegetes it. David himself calls him the Messiah Lord or master. How then can the Messiah be his son? Now you're going, um, I choose B. I don't know. Like, what's the, this is not fun. Can you get to something better? Like, I, I get this. this is, but I want you to see something just really quickly. Look at how this passage ends. The large crowd listened to him with delight. This large crowd is listening to me going, um, Lord and Lord, I don't understand. What did they see the crowd there that we're not seeing. It's this. Jesus takes a passage that those teachers of the law were experts at. And he said, your faith and your religion have taught you that this passage says this. It doesn't. It does not say that the Messiah will be the son of David because of this one fact. In first century Palestine, and in fact in all of Hebrew culture, no son was ever greater than the father. It didn't matter if the son became a king and the father was a pauper. It didn't matter. The father was still greater. So no father would ever call his son master. It wouldn't happen. Everyone listening knew that. So what they get and what we need to get this morning to understand why they're all of a sudden delighted is this. Jesus is explaining, if you read this right, you will know that the Messiah is not going to be the literal son of David. He's going to be the literal son of God. And if you've been listening to what's going on, and the reason I'm going to be arrested here in a couple days is because the rumor is, I'm the son of God. And in this passage, more than any other passage that we've read thus far, Jesus is revealing his true identity as the son of God more than anywhere else. And those listening, they saw it, 
And they went, we're in the presence of God. We, we, the Messiah, it, this is him. He doesn't have to be the son of David. He's the son of God, and, and you're the son of God, and this is incredible. And the teachers of the law are going, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, no. Messiah comes from the line of David. You did not. You're the son. Their religion stops them from seeing God. I wonder, I wonder how often ours does the same. And I will tread lightly here because I love Christianity. I love our religion, our faith. Love it. I went to Bible college for four years and was taught ministry and religion. I have a piece of paper that's called a diploma that says I'm proficient in both, ministry and religion. I was taught at a Reformation school, meaning this, it was a school that believed in a little phrase called solo scriptura, only the Bible. And I was taught that if it's in here, it's truth, and if it's not in here, you don't worry about it. I was taught religion by some really smart people. But just like these religious leaders, their religion hindered them from seeing God standing right in front of them. Because they went, I know this passage better than you do. I was taught it by the best, and the best said it means this. They missed God, and how sad is that? That religion, their faith, their service to God could cause them to miss God. So it made me think this week, how often does that happen to us? How often does our belief system cause us to miss God? You're going, I don't think it ever does. I think it pushes me towards God. Right, here's just one example. I told you about that school I went to. Um, because this particular school is super conservative and didn't really know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Here's what they taught at, at this school that I went to. They taught that the Holy Spirit and all of the gifts of the Spirit were available in the days of the apostles. And once all the apostles died, that those gifts and those things ceased to exist. That's what they taught. So for 10 years of my life, you know what I believe? Exactly what I was taught. Holy Spirit was for then. We don't need the Holy Spirit. We got the Bible. For 10 years, I missed a little thing called revelation. Do you, do you know how freeing it was to finally realize that the Holy Spirit can actually, like, like speak things to my heart that, I mean, they're going to line up with this, but I don't have to just open this to hear it. Like, God, God can actually reveal things to you. Do you, do you know how freeing that was to me? To know that it's not just academic, like it is relational. The Holy Spirit is part of me and he, and he can speak to me in, in, in a life-giving way. Like, to know that he's powerful still today because I was taught that he wasn't. I, I missed the power of the Holy Spirit because of what I was taught. That's, that's just me. But then it made me think even more. Like what, what, about, what about our religious systems? What about our functions? What, what has that done to cause us to miss or dilute God? Um, here's one that I think maybe some of you have ever or maybe you've heard, your church attendance. Maybe you've been told that being at church is very important. I don't know if anyone comes from a Catholic background. 
but, but those who come from a Catholic background like myself, you know the importance of attending Mass. You go to Mass. And, and you can do a lot of other stuff that is not God-honoring or glorifying, but if you go to Mass, you get points with God, and that's what you need to make sure you do. You get to Mass. And that religious system teaches that going to Mass is very important. But you know what that fails to teach that I believe is central to the heart of God is to love your neighbor. So I, I go to church and I'm doing what God wants me to do, but what God says is I really could care less if you're in church. I need you to love your neighbor. And that's just another example of how religion, I think, causes us to miss God. That's just, that's just one. Has anyone ever come from a church or a belief um, in morality or where morality is taught that you need to be good and you need to be really good and those of you who are tr struggling to be good, it's because you're not working hard enough at being good. A, a system of religion that says, do not do these five things. And as long as you're not doing these five things, God loves you a lot. But the minute you do one of those five things, God does not like you as much. There's churches that teach that. Christian church churches that teach that. They teach morality. And here's the problem. You're trying with everything in yourself to be good and to be moral, and you're realizing that you're failing miserably. And you wonder why. And it's because that religious belief does something that I think is horrific um, for those who teach morality. They forget the gospel. And everything is central to the gospel. If you remove the gospel, you've got nothing. If you teach morality without the gospel, your morality will always fail. The gospel says simply this, you're broke, you can't be good enough, and you need the grace of Jesus Christ in your life desperately more than anything else. Yet, there's people within our religion that would diminish the gospel to teach morality. In our religion, there's people that teach form and function. At least that's how it was taught to me. Specifically within prayer. You're, you're taught how to pray. You need to pray with a normal language like you're talking to your best friend. And you need to keep your words short and concise. Don't be elaborate or drawn out. God already knows your prayers. You're taught to do so, and you're taught to pray in the morning because that's when God listens. I guess he doesn't listen in the evenings, but you're taught to pray in the mornings. And when you're taught form and function versus power, you miss God. You're taught to offer up this prayer to start your day, and you miss the power of God to guide you through your day. I think our religion can sometimes cause us to miss God. I wish I had put this one in the middle of my list because I don't want you to think that this has anything to do with money, but one thing that our religion teaches us to do is to tithe, to give 10% back to God. And sometimes I think our religion can teach that legalistically and we miss what's most important and that's a generous heart. And I can't tell you the amount of times that I personally have written a check for 10% or just about. You know, I round it up. But like pretty close. And, and I put that in and I'm just like, man, I could use that. But okay, God, you can have it. 
There's no, there's no generosity. There's no joy in giving. And, and, and God goes, I don't even want that. That's putrid to me. I want you to have a generous heart. Yet our religion teaches, man, you write that check, you're good to go. You're clearly generous. And you're not. Religion, now it's supposed to exclude Christianity, and I get this. I'm not, I think at its purest sense, Christianity is fine, but just hear this. Religion in general, any religion, it has always been designed and it's always been about man making their way back to God. All world religions are about man getting back to God. And I think because it makes sense to us and it keeps the ball in our court, even those who call themselves Christians believe that it's about you getting yourself back in good grace with God. And at the heart of what we believe, it is about Jesus being the embodiment of God coming to man. And us in a broken and humble state saying, we can't get to you. So you came to us. And, and it makes it simple, church. It makes it all about Him. And, and so this morning, as Nick comes back up here, I, I want you to hear this echoing from my mouth. I just want Him. I don't want a belief system. I don't want an impervious theology that no one can poke holes into. I don't want a set of doctrines and rules that I have to live my life by. I just want Him. And then to take it a step further, I don't want anything that I have structured in my life to dilute or remove Him. And I think if we were to be honest, and I need you to be honest, and you were to take a good, hard look at your life, there may be things that you call religious and therefore deem good that are actually hindering you from Him. I gave you some examples, but you need to take a good hard look at yourself. You need to take a good hard look at your soul and say, is there something I'm doing that I'm calling good, that I'm calling serving God that's stopping me from seeing Him? These religious leaders in our text, they were, all they were doing was touting what they had been taught, and it caused them to miss God. I think it can be that easy and that simple to miss Him. And today I pray that we do whatever it takes to stop missing Him. Because I want Him, and you need Him. And the final thing I want you to hear is this. I don't think this is overly simplified. But if you have Him, truly have Him, all this other stuff is going to kind of fall into place. I, I, I really believe that. It's not a form, it's not a structure, it's not a religion, it's a relationship with Him. That's what we need. So today, after I pray, we'll respond. Reflect on this. This is, this is stuff that needs to be reflected upon. Remember the gospel, the central truth to what we believe, that God came to us and for us and gave us grace sufficient for all of our sins. 
Through faith in Him we have salvation and there is nothing that we can do on our own apart from Him to gain that. It is only because of faith. That's what communion is. Remember that and worship in that. And then for those who have been beaten down by religion, and I know there's some of you in here who have, we're going to have prayer team members that would love to just pray with you, love, let you just pour out your heart before them and say, I need Jesus so bad. I need him so bad. Let them pray with you. Or those who are hurting and broken, those who are sick, those who need healing. This can be for anything. I know that there are sick and hurting people here. Let them lift up your request before a God who heals and restores and delivers. Let them pray over you and with you. This is not a sign of weakness. This is a sign of strength. And then finally, during this time, it's, it's a good opportunity to give your tithes and offerings as a worship in a generous heart saying, here, I love you, God. I love you more than anything on this earth, and the biggest thing that represents this earth is my money, so here you go. Generously, I give, because I know I need you more than it. This is a great time to do that. we got boxes back there. You can do it. But just respond. Please, church, respond. We're going to add some more space every week for you to respond until you learn that there's power in these moments. There's power in these moments. So God, come and show us your power. Come and show us your truth. Come and show us your son, Jesus, and may we know that we need him more than anything else in this world. We love you, Father. So come and have your way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.